Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid and today I'm delighted to have on the program Dr. Lisa Wood, who leads the nutrition program within the Centre for Asthma and Respiratory Disorders at the University of Newcastle. Dr. Wood is a nutritional biochemist whose research over many years has looked at the link between nutrition and inflammation, particularly in respiratory disorders. Welcome, Dr. Wood. Thank you. So what led you to becoming interested in the link between respiratory disorders and nutrition and particularly inflammatory uh, respiratory disorders? It came from the fact that there's a lot of consumers uh, that have diseases um, such as asthma in particular that I'm interested in and they believe that they can control or manage their symptoms by changing what they eat. So um, they make different modifications to their diet. They might stop eating particular foods or they might increase their intake of certain foods because they think that that changes the control of their disease. But there isn't much scientific evidence to support any particular type of eating pattern. And so what I have been uh, working on with my um, research is to try and develop the evidence base to direct people as to what they should be eating to uh, help manage their asthma symptoms. So what are the common myths that are out there uh, for the link between nutrition and, for example, asthma? There's a variety of things that people uh, do tend to avoid. So one of the most common is your dairy foods uh, because people believe that it might uh, increase their production of mucus which can then interfere with their breathing. However, there's, there actually is no evidence to say that that does in fact occur. Um, but that is one of the most common uh, things that people change in their diet by cutting out dairy foods. And that then has potentially uh, quite significant impact on their health in other ways because they then can develop uh, a deficiency in uh, different nutrients, calcium for example, which has detrimental effects on their health. So we really um, need to develop the evidence so that people don't move into a situation where they're avoiding healthy foods that are actually necessary for um, normal bodily function because they're thinking that it could affect their asthma, whereas in fact it might actually not be an important factor for them. Have you done any research into what sort of foods can be harmful or helpful in producing or um, getting rid of inflammation in respiratory disease? Yeah, we've done a lot of work in that area. Uh, most of our studies have focused on uh, three different aspects of the diet that um, we've found to be linked to asthma and asthma symptoms. So we've done work um, looking at Um, antioxidants, also dietary fat and then we've also done um, a number of studies looking at the effects of obesity. Okay, so let's just take first of all the antioxidants. When you say antioxidants, I think most people would conjure up a a bottle of pills. (laughs) Is that the type of research that's been done? or? Okay, so the work that we've done with antioxidants has uh, looked at different types of Um, or different ways of administering antioxidants. So I guess as a starting point, it's good to to stop and think about what antioxidants are and how you can get them into your diet. So antioxidants are substances that are present in certain foods and particularly in plant foods, so things like fruit and vegetables. 
and they are helpful in the body because they um, mop up free radicals which I think a lot of people have heard of free radicals they're damaging substances that are produced by various things our bodies are exposed to antioxidants mop them up and stop them doing damage they're found in as I said mainly um, fruits and vegetables but then there's certain other foods that are high in antioxidants as well so things like nuts tea even red wine has quite a lot of antioxidants in it um, and each of those foods can contribute to building up your antioxidant defences. We've done um, a number of studies now. So we've done some studies where we use um, a tomato extract that's delivered as a pill. And we've also done studies where we manipulate the amount of those antioxidant-rich foods in people's diets. And overall, it's really the manipulation of the foods that is most effective. In one study, we got people to withdraw antioxidants out of their diet. So we got them to limit their fruit intake to one serve per day, limit their vegetables to two serves per day, and then to you know reduce their intake of foods such as um, nuts and tea. And we saw that after just two weeks on that diet, that caused people's uh, airway inflammation to worsen. So inflammation is one of the things that contributes to asthma. Um, and we, got, we found that a low antioxidant diet worsened their inflammation and it also worsened their asthma symptoms. And then we've done studies where we've got people to increase their intake of antioxidant-rich foods and we found that that actually reduces their inflammation. So that has the opposite effect. Um, we also found that going on to a high antioxidant diet reduced people's risk of exacerbating from asthma. So people with asthma are, um, you know, intermittently will have these asthma attacks where they need to use more of their asthma medications or they might even be hospitalised because their asthma has worsened. And we found that when people ate a high intake of antioxidant-rich foods, it reduced their chances of having one of those serious asthma attacks. When you talk about a high antioxidant diet, can you give me a bit of an example starting with breakfast? When people are asked to increase their antioxidants, it's really something that you sort of have to be aware of throughout the day. You can't sort of say at the end of the day, oh, it's dinner time, I'm going to eat five serves of vegetables and two serves of fruit because it's just not practical. So um, what people need to do is to start from breakfast. For breakfast, um, we would encourage them to eat things, you know, maybe um, instead of having um, an egg on toast, maybe have some tomato, mushrooms, um, any sorts of fruit, uh, fruit salad. Um, whole grains are actually rich in antioxidants, so whole grain bread, um, whole grain cereals. That would be a, a, rich, a high antioxidant breakfast. So things that have the whole grain there, so muesli, porridge, um, also dried fruit, um, so cereals. That if you if you want a breakfast, cereal foods, cereals that have dried fruit um, are rich in antioxidants. But then also you know fresh fruit um, as well. For lunch, a high antioxidant lunch, um, you would again include your whole grain 
breads rather than um, your processed breads uh, if you if you're wanting to have a sandwich. Salads, so salads salads on their own, salads in a sandwich. Um, so you know if people are trying to increase their antioxidant intake instead of having you know a cheese sandwich, they might have a cheese sandwich with you know packed with lots of lovely fresh um, salad ingredients. Um, then for dinner, again, not just having your meat and potato, but putting in those vegetables that are rich in antioxidants, particularly um, good uh, vegetables that are an orange colour, um, because the orange colour is actually an antioxidant. It's that the orange colour is actually uh, your carotenoids, and they are one of the most effective antioxidants. So your green and yellow vegetables um, to accompany your main meal, that that adds antioxidants into the diet. Having nuts for a snack is another way of doing that. Any particular nuts better than others? All your nuts are rich in um, antioxidants, so um, personal preference can guide your choice there. And I mean, I did mention red wine as being rich in antioxidants <laughs> as well, but obviously there's, you know, the alcohol in red wine can combat some of the uh, beneficial effects of the antioxidants, so that sort of needs to be taken with caution. I know that cardiovascularly they recommend one or two glasses of red wine a day as a preventive. Is there any sort of recommendation like that if you are an asthma sufferer? No, definitely not. So with the alcohol story, it really depends what outcome you're looking at. You know, one to two glasses of red wine might be good for cardiovascular disease but may not be good for other conditions. There's certainly no evidence to say that in asthma um, alcohol is beneficial, but... um, yeah, but nonetheless, it is a source of antioxidants. So, yes, as is chocolate. So, yes. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, really, if you sort of think of the plant-based foods, unprocessed foods, they're the ones that are going to really boost the antioxidant levels in your system. And you talked about tea as well. I think any particular sort there. Uh, well, no, not particularly. Um, most There are differences in different types of teas, um, but all are a good source of antioxidants. So, again, personal preference can guide your choice there. And does it matter if you, if you have milk with it? Well, there has been some suggestion that milk can bind some of the antioxidants that are present in tea, but the evidence is conflicting in that regard. Um, I think, you know, really one key study brought that to people's attention and it probably does reduce the antioxidant intake to some extent but as with anything if something's not palatable then you're not going to you're not going to eat it or drink it so if you can't drink your your tea without milk then it's silly to sort of you know suggest that that's the only way that you're going to get any benefit and you certainly will get um, you know some antioxidant um, boost from tea even if it has got milk in it. Any idea how much tea? Oh, no, not really. <laughs> right, so it's really just combining all of those things together. Yeah. That is the important, it's the awareness of an antioxidant source and trying to make your diet as rich in, as you can in those. Yeah, that's right. Make those sort of food choices. Yeah, I think so. And really, the the high antioxidant diet that we've used in our studies includes the guideline that we give for people is to include five serves of vegetables and two serves of fruit each day and even though we call that a high antioxidant diet it actually is the NHMRC recommended intake of fruit and vegetables 
It's just that most of us don't eat it. So it's a goal that we should all be aiming for, for our general overall health. And, you know, that high intake of fruit and vegetables has been shown to be beneficial in cardiovascular disease, in cancer. But now the work that we've done has shown that it also is beneficial in asthma. So well, it's probably all the same link, isn't it? It's the benefit to your immune system. Well, that's right, because all of those disease all of those diseases are chronic inflammatory diseases. And um, so it's the same mechanism. The, the end organ might be different, but it is the same underlying process. Yeah. Exactly. You're listening to Wellbeing, and my guest today is Dr Lisa Wood, and we're discussing the link between diet and respiratory disease. So, Lisa, you were saying that um, the other research that you've done is looking at the types of fats that we eat and whether there's a link with inflammatory disorders in the respiratory tract. Yes, so this is some of the most interesting work that we've done. We've been doing fat challenges in people with asthma and to do this we've been looking at an acute situation where we get a person to consume a single meal that's very high in fat and then we look at what happens in their airways and with their symptoms over the next four hours. And what we found is that when people with asthma have a very high fat load that their inflammation worsens in their lungs but also, which is really sort of took us by surprise, we found that it reduces the efficacy of their bronchodilator or their ventilant. So if people have a high fat load and then they um, have an asthma attack, then if they use their ventolin, the ability of their ventolin to help them recover is diminished. Mm, so it has really quite you know, significant implications in terms of people's control and managing their asthma because you know, ventolin is our main way that, you know, the main rescue medication, it's the main way that people um, in an you know, acute situation, they quickly turn to their ventolin to try and uh, you know, pick their lung function up again. And if it's not working effectively, then that has potentially really serious effects. So by a high-fat meal, would an example be, say, a triple cheeseburger and a chocolate smoothie? Yes, that would be a very good example. <laughs> that would do the trick? <laughs> well, the meal that we used in our studies was... Um, two breakfast burgers and two hash browns. An equivalent meal would be a big double burger and a bag of fry, a bag of chips, a bag of fries would be equivalent. So it wasn't a meal that was particularly uncommon. Like it no. was the meal we used was a, outstanding. A, yeah, it was a it was a high calorie, um, you know, high fat meal, but would would not be out of the ordinary for a lot of people to sit down and eat a meal that size. Um, so it, it um, you know, really gives us sort of a bit of a warning that mm. um, what you're eating doesn't just affect your weight, it yeah. also can affect what's happening in the airways. And that was a really surprising finding because, it, you know, it hadn't been, um, you know, fat intake hadn't been looked at in this way before and um, 
Yes, so we're following up that now with a series of other studies to try and understand exactly why this occurs because if we understand why it occurs then that gives us a potential to be able to think of strategies to stop it occurring. If, has anybody looked at the impact of uh, so, so, so we're talking mostly there about saturated fats, so animal fats. Yeah. Has anybody looked at the effect of unsaturated fats or, or you know plant-based fats, nut-based fats, etc., on on inflammatory uh, respiratory disorders? Okay, well, no, they haven't. Um, so that, and that <laughs> what what is what our meal consisted of? It, it was high in saturated fat, but it did also have quite a lot of um, polyunsaturated fat in it as well. Mm. Um, it was a mixed meal. So what we're now doing, it also was actually high in carbohydrate because high fat high fat foods usually are also high carbohydrate foods because if you don't That's have they're so yummy. if you don't have the carbohydrate there it's not very palatable so yeah. what we're now doing is a study where we're giving people um, we're using mashed potato as our base and to that we're adding different types of fat so we're giving some people saturated fat we're using um, omega-6 polyunsaturated fat um, and then we're also looking at a high carbohydrate load and we're just trying to tease out if it's all of those nutrients that could be contributing to the effect or if you know I mean you might, the most obvious suspect is the saturated fat um, because it, a lot of studies have shown that saturated fat can cause inflammation but we also want to know if these other nutrients can contribute to um, the negative effect as well. I've always wondered, are there studies that show that a high carbohydrate load, so in other words a high sugar sort of diet, yeah. can contribute to inflammation? Are they pro-inflammatory? There are a few oh, limited studies. surprising, isn't it, given the amount of sugar we actually consume? Yeah, it hasn't been a focus of research, but there are a few, if you go looking for it, you can find a few studies that have asked the question and there is a little bit of information to show that you know, high carbohydrate can cause inflammation, but there's not a lot of work that's been done. And um, I think that you know that's um, an important step to take because with the now in our um, you know, supermarkets, there's a lot of products that are low fat, but generally speaking, low fat products, they've replaced the energy with carbohydrates, so they're often high sugar products. And so as, we, as our society is moving in that direction, swapping fat for carbohydrate, we need to sort of understand what effects that that could actually lead to. Mm, absolutely. I mean, we know that a high GI diet is associated with acne now, so yep. I can, and it's an inflammatory disorder of the skin, so I can only... Uh, yeah. Yeah. But as you say, you need the scientific research before you go making recommendations and um, causal links. Yeah, that's right. Mm, absolutely. Well, that's the nice thing too about doing studies of the nature that we do. Uh, there's a lot of studies that look at associations. So they take big populations and they look at associations between different things. They might say, okay, so the people who developed cardiovascular disease, what differences did they have in their diet and you know, get these associations. But with our work, we're doing food challenges. So 
you see, you know, you make the change, you do a particular intervention and then you see what effect that causes. That's the strength of that type of study design that you see the cause and effect. Mm. It is a much stronger uh, link, I would imagine, than it doesn't need as many, uh, as big a population either. No, no, it's just as yeah, the big it's epidemiological quite a style studies. study. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And so therefore there's no real studies looking at the cumulative effect of a high-fat diet. That's no, at this stage, um, not in asthma. No. So there's, there's studies that have looked at more chronic long-term high-fat intake in the development of other diseases, but in asthma, uh, that work hasn't been done yet. But this, these studies that we're doing, these short-term acute studies will help direct that next stage for us so that we can understand which nutrients are important to follow through. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's and maybe sort of, guide the epidemiologists a bit. Yeah. That's sort of the staged approach that we're taking. Yeah. You're listening to Wellbeing and my guest today is Dr Lisa Wood and we're discussing the link between diet and respiratory diseases such as asthma and other uh, inflammatory disorders of the respiratory tract. The last thing that you talked about was the link between body weight or body fat and inflammatory disorders of the respiratory tract. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, it's interesting that when you uh, look at uh, people with asthma um, that are also overweight and obese, they have a different profile to people who aren't carrying that extra weight. And we've done quite a lot of work to characterise that because those people don't respond very well to the medications. So if you, um, if you have asthma and you're obese, you're more likely to exacerbate. Your symptoms are going to, on average, be worse and you won't respond very well to your medications. We've just established through some of our studies that at least part of the reason for that is because obesity leads to a different type of airway inflammation um, it, it leads to a type of inflammation that involves neutrophils and that's not your typical immune response, uh, allergic immune response. So just to go back a step, asthma has traditionally been known or seen to be an allergic disease and allergens um, cause a certain type of cell to move into the airway, it's called the neosinophil. And these eosinophils are your response to the allergy and that causes your inflammation and makes your lung function worse. But that's not the only thing that can cause asthma. And in obese people, we, found, we have found that they have a different type of inflammatory cell, a neutrophil. And why this is important is because asthma is traditionally treated using corticosteroids. So either inhaled ones as a maintenance therapy or um, when people's asthma worsens, they might have prednisone, so your oral corticosteroids. But the, the significance of the type of inflammation is that those corticosteroids, they work on eosinophils, but they don't work on neutrophils. So obesity causes this type of inflammation where there's this type of cell in the lungs that isn't responding to the medication that they're being given. So um, that was a really significant finding um, and you know that sort of again it's the first step in understanding how you could better treat people if you understand 
understand what's causing their disease and now we're sort of working through different strategies to deal with that. The obvious strategy is for people to lose weight. Um, but, you know, as we all know, everyone who is overweight or obese knows that they need to be weight but for whatever reason haven't been able to achieve that. So, um, you know, other options for... Um, you know, for dealing with the disease or managing it better needs to sort of be explored. We did do a weight loss study um, in people who were overweight and obese and um, I think probably the most important finding for that work is you definitely there's no doubt that if you lose weight it does improve your asthma. That's a given. There's lots of studies that have showed that. But we were specifically interested in looking at the degree of weight loss because if if someone's 30 kilos overweight, they may think, well, I just could never get back to my healthy weight. It's impossible. I couldn't lose 30 kilos. But what we found in our work is that just a 5 to 10% weight loss, which for most people would be sort of 5 to 10 kilos, just that amount of weight loss significantly improved um, their quality of life and their asthma symptoms. So we hope that, that putting this information out demonstrating that even small changes like you know five kilos will actually really significantly improve your quality of life that hopefully will be motivation for people to take that step to start the weight loss even if the healthy BMI seems unachievable just making that small improvement yeah do it for your asthma not <laughs> that's right not for weight loss per se yeah it's yeah. true it's it's often a bit of a self-sabotage isn't it so if you look at it more from the viewpoint of asthma improving your asthma it may just work and just yeah small changes to start with because even if that's all you can achieve that will improve your your lungs is there any evidence for exercise as being pro or anti-inflammatory? Um, usually what happens with exercise is that you get, in the short term, you'll get um, an inflammatory response, but um, that's just sort of, you know, a compensatory response from the body to when you're stressing your muscles. But if you regularly exercise, then you'll get um, an overall reduction in inflammation. Exercise alone often doesn't reduce weight and in our study we found that it was only a small one to two kilo reduction in weight when people just exercised and they didn't change their calories because of course energy intake is always going to be you know, the most important factor in terms of determining weight loss or weight gain because it's so much easier to eat extra calories than it is to exercise them off. But people who were doing the exercise intervention, they did get a, um, without getting a large weight loss, they still did have an improvement in their quality of life and there was a reduction in um, their airway inflammation. So exercise definitely um, came out as being a beneficial component as well. Mm, certainly very novel work and I thank you very much for it. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr Lisa Wood who leads the nutrition program within the Centre for Asthma and Respiratory Diseases at University of Newcastle. I'm Dr Virginia Reid and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.